Let's open this way. Um, would you put your hand on your heart tonight? Um, King Jesus, all over the room, I'm asking you to touch every heart. And would you do something that sounds so simple, yet the implications of it would be so profound? Would you provoke us to contend in our hour of history for an unprecedented and historic outpouring of your spirit to unveil the beauty and the majesty, the sovereignty of Jesus. We want to see a city come under the canopy of the rule of Jesus. We want to see a region be divinely possessed and overtaken by the power of God. Would you awaken our hearts and would you shake us from lesser things that we've been satisfied with? And would you recalibrate us to the wonder of your power? Deposit hunger on the inside. That we will give our lives to see a move of God that shakes our moment of history. Lord, we're thankful for yesterday and yesteryears, but I am not satisfied with the pages of a history book. Lord, we want to see you do something. We want it to be extraordinary. Display and demonstrate your power. Yeah, and do something in our heart to where this is what we would give our life to. Would you help us and give us grace here, we pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you brought a Bible tonight, let's open it to Psalm 132. Now, regardless of how you may have that, actual pages, if you have it on a device of some sort, a phone or an iPad, I'm going to trust you. <laughs> All right, that you're going to be with me in the scriptures. And that you're not going to check out on me and be scrolling <laughs> somewhere else. Uh, let's open to Psalm 132. Uh, as you turn there, I'd like to once again just say what an honor it's been to be with you guys over these days. Uh, particularly, thank you for all of you that we've been able to interact with in a variety of ways and how you have helped to really make us feel welcomed and loved uh, and to provide us a place where we feel like we belong. <laughs> Uh, and you've welcomed us in, uh, and it really means a lot. Thank you for your hospitality, for your generosity, just for the way that we've been able to be refreshed in finding those who are burning for the same things that we feel we're burning for. We want Jesus. 
We want him to be exalted. We want to see him reigning on high. Uh, we get it, yes, on that great day, but I want the Lord to do something unique in our day. Um, and so it's, it's been a real treat to be with you. Oh, I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Aye, aye, aye. I was like, wait, I'm missing something. Like, um, that's hilarious. Uh, but it really, it really has. It's, it's meant a lot to us. Um, your hospitality. Right? Hospitality is a big thing to the Lord. Right? Paul references in Timothy and Titus hospitality in both of the sections where the qualifications for those who are to be considered for kingdom influence. Hospitality is in all of those, um, let's just say, charts, if you would, that Paul lays out. Um, as a matter of fact, all of history is going to close with hospitality. <laughs> when we welcome him who comes riding upon the cloud. And he says, I will not return until you welcome me the way that I want to be welcomed, is what he says to the leaders of Jerusalem. Right until the leaders of Jerusalem, and we know the provoking of the Jews, and they begin to sing Psalm 118. Right, so we understand that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right, so hospitality is a big thing to Jesus, and therefore it's a big thing to us. Uh, and because what matters to him, we want to matter to us. Uh, it matters, and because it matters, it's always a joy to have our hearts refreshed by a people who really care about hospitality, and it can be seen, and it can be felt. Um, and we know that all of that starts with the way that things get modeled. Uh, and so thank you for your hearts. Thank you for the way that you've given yourself to the things of God and really what the Lord has been able to birth and build here in the midst of you. Um, we really honor these guys. Uh, Tom and Katie, and I'm sure several of you, most of you, recognize what a gift they are. If it's your first time here, then, then you may be hearing it for the first time. Uh, but can we take a moment and can we celebrate and honor the leaders here? Yes. Come on. And I will do that unashamedly, and I don't feel weird about it at all. Um, so thank you for, for helping me to honor you guys. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's been a joy. Uh, in Psalm 132, I believe I have a specific target tonight, uh, and I pray that the Lord gives us grace to lift us to the heights upon which he desires us to adventure or to soar. In Psalm 132, it is, many believe, Solomon reflecting on the life of his father. And in Psalm 132, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. I get it. The whole thing is amazing, right? Every verse is amazing. Throughout the whole Bible, every chapter, it's all amazing. We want all of it because it all helps to paint a fuller and brighter and more real face of Jesus that we get to behold. Uh, but in Psalm 132, it's Solomon reflecting on the life of his father. And depending on the translation that you have, verse 1, it, it can tell a different story depending on the translation again. 
Uh, and I love a variety of translations. I may have particular ones that I use for uh, more intentional ways to study or for speaking from or things of that nature. But I love sifting through and really like adventuring through a variety of translations to help to emphasize the different points that the writers are making. And in verse number one of Psalm 132, it's David that Solomon is reflecting upon. And he uses words as he says, Oh Lord, remember, in one translation says, the painful affliction of your servant David. Another translation says the burden that he bore. Remember the way that he was troubled. And what Solomon is being reminded of as he's reflecting on his life as on his father's life is that there was something that he recognized that his father carried in the place of an ache on the inside that helped to bring direction to everything else that his life was right we get this out of psalm 27 this one thing i ask Right? And we recognize it's not in a season of convenience, right? Because it's easy to be on fire when it's convenient, right? But this isn't convenience, right? Psalm 27, 4, this one thing I ask, this is the one thing that if I get this one thing, every other thing is going to find its proper bearings. Every other thing is going to function the way that it's supposed to. But if you ask me one thing that I have for my life to be defined by, one thing that I get to be a pursuit for all of my days, one thing that's going to brand me and put me into motion, that's going to help me to be responsible with all of the other variety of things that I may feel like I'm supposed to be responsible for, this is what it's going to be. I want to get in his house. I want to see his face. I want to linger long. I want to gaze deep. I want to behold his beauty. I want to pursue him all of my days. I want to inquire of him in his temple, in his tabernacle. Right? And David is not saying this in a moment of convenience. This is not convenience. This is conviction. Because convenience wanes depending on the success of your season. Right? When things are convenient, it's easy to be on fire when all your ducks in a row. But this is not convenience for David. He starts in verses 1, 2, and 3 realizing he's having a bad day. He talks about enemies and adversaries, war raging around him, those that are desiring to devour his flesh. He is revealing that this is not a cry of convenience, but it is a cry that is coming out of a deep place of conviction where the Lord has touched him and it has done something to him that has created a burden that Solomon is reflecting on that his father carried that adjusted every other thing in his life to where every other thing was now going to orbit around what had become the main thing. And this is what he's saying in Psalm 27 verse 4. This is the main thing. And every other thing is going to be subject to this main thing. And what David recognized is, man, the pursuit of God, building him a place to rest, to dwell, to inhabit upon the earth. And this is what Solomon is reflecting on. Solomon is remembering the life of his father. And he's saying, man, something happened to my dad. Something happened to him. Like God touched him. And in a way, it ruined his life. 
It ruined him in the best possible way. It ruined him and created a divine dissatisfaction for all of the other things that people had created that became their main thing because it was what was satisfying their hearts and lives. And Solomon was remembering that this was not the way that my dad lived. As a matter of fact, there were those that mocked him. There were those that ridiculed him. There were those that said that his gifts, his talents, his strengths could have been better utilized in other ways to demonstrate them, express them, to help to leverage them, to be more responsible or successful with other things that God had spoken to him. But something happened to my dad and it ruined him. It derailed him for the pursuit of success in a worldly sense. It derailed him for all of the other worldly satisfactions that others fall into the trenches for. Something happened to my dad and it disrupted every other satisfaction that could have gained a hold of his heart. It ruined him in the best possible way. And Solomon is reflecting on what he calls a painful affliction that his father carried. And David carried a burden. David carried an ache on the inside. He carried a man, it hurts so good. And he says, as he's reflecting on the life of his dad, he says, this is what my dad cared about. He said, I will not enter into the place of my dwelling. He said, I will not come into my house and try to rest. He says, I will give no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids. David is trying in the best way that he knows how to communicate the extent of the cost that he is willing to pay in order for him to be able to see what it is that God has revealed to him he desires. And he says, this is the main thing. And this main thing is now the thing in my life that every other thing is going to orbit around. And Solomon is reflecting on his dad's jealousy to build the Lord a place to dwell in the earth. But can we honestly say that as we've gathered here tonight, that our main ache in our life was David's? And this is not going to be a one-size-fits-all, and it's not going to be everybody's consideration the same way. Because David's primary jealousy was, I will pay whatever price. I have counted the cost, and I am willing to go all in. I am willing to give it all. I am willing to give up every other thing, even in the consideration of what would be the most painful thing in my life. If you want to take sleep from me, take sleep from me. I know people that if they don't get enough sleep, it's going to be painful for others. <laughs> Come on, man. I've got toddlers in my house. See, some of y'all are thinking about people, you know. <laughs> uh, I've got toddlers in my house. And when my three-year-old doesn't get a nap, baby, it's only a matter of time. I promise you. And we're like, no, he needs that nap. <laughs> For my sake, he's taking that nap. 
But David is trying to communicate the price that he's willing to pay. He says, no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, because this is what matters most to me. And because this is what matters most to me, this is the thing that is going to inform the priority of every other thing. And we all have a main thing in our life that everything else is orbiting around. And now the reality of that might not necessarily be the same thing that we communicate because we would have to evaluate our lives and see the way that our life is set up to be able to understand what main thing is driving the importance of every other thing. Whatever the main thing is, is what all of the other things are sacrificing at the altar of. Right? And that may be my career. That may be the priority of my kids and their extracurricular activities. That may be whatever the main thing is, whatever the drive, whatever it is that puts every other thing into what you say is its proper place because the main thing is what all those other things are orbiting around. Because the main thing is the consideration of the cost of those other things. And in the consideration of what the cost of those other things are to replace the main thing, the reason the main thing is the main thing is because it has been deemed more important than those other things. And that's something that we have to own whether or not we actually like how it unfolds in my life. And David is saying you can scrap everything else. You can have it all. Because the way that the Lord has touched my heart and the way that God has revealed to me what it is that he's after, this is now what's becoming my main thing. And in order for me to be responsible the way that God intends me to be with every other thing, I have to make the main thing the main thing. Because David recognized that there was a lot that he had going on. He had been entrusted with a lot. He was the king. He was the greatest military leader of his day. There was a lot that David had in the conversation of his life. But he says, these things will never function the way that God intends for me to be trusted with them if I don't establish in the core of my heart what it is that is supposed to be the main thing. And the main thing is his throne has to be established in my heart. Because I'm not actually the king, he's the king. And David, in 1 Chronicles 15, it says that he brings the ark of God into the center of Jerusalem. And he was a man that could be trusted to bring the ark representing the presence of God into the center of a city because God's throne had already been established in the center of his heart. You see, David says something that is challenging in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3. In his provoking to begin to pursue the ark, he says, we have not considered the pursuit of the ark since the days of Saul. And we realized that it had been almost 70 years that Abinadab had had the ark in someone's house. That the Philistines had had the ark. We get it. But David is saying it's time to pursue the presence again. It's time for all of life to be recalibrated around the throne of God. 
It's now to set up God in the center of everything, not just in a theological way by where we rally in moments of excitement and we say God is everything. No, no, no. God is everything. And so we're going to make him everything. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to establish presence in the middle of everything that we're about. And we are going to reorient our lives around presence. And together, we're going to recalibrate our hearts. And then together, we're going to rally around the throne. We're going to rally around a person. We're going to rally around the presence, even as it was as God led them in Exodus around the mount. All of the tribes were set up around the mount where God revealed himself in glory on the top of the mount. Because life is to be set up around presence together. There's no avoiding this. Because David was entrusted to reproduce something that God had revealed to him. The reality of what exists in the heavens, David longed to see established on the earth. And this is what he went after. You have John's heavenly throne room vision in Revelation 4 and 5. And there are so many parallels and unique similarities for what it is that David longed to see established that John was able to perceive. So many similarities. You have 24 elders casting their crowns. David and Asaph set up 24 fathers that were overseeing the Levites and the worshipers in the tent. You have angels worshiping creatures with eyes and wings, beholding and singing songs to the Lamb night and day, day and night, 24-7. Man, some of us get bored after an hour. <laughs> but you have creatures that from the moment they have been privileged to behold him, they have not stopped singing the same song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're not criticizing the worship leader for staying on the same chorus. Like, bro, like, don't you get paid to do this, man? Like, can't you learn another song? Like... Like, bro, if you ain't gonna have a real job, you know what I'm saying? Like, could you, could you at least, like, learn some new songs, bro? Like, I mean, bro, we've sang that song, like, three Sundays in a row now. Like, I mean, I mean, like, come on. It's only funny because you know how real it is. Night and day, day and night, they sing the same song. They're not bored with the chorus because they're not bored with him. And we need the Lord to do something to conquer the unique thresholds of boredom that we are unwilling to acknowledge in all of our own lives. <laughs> For some of us, Matthew 6 is a terrifying consideration. Right? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, forget all the public stuff. Forget the street corner stuff. Right? Take it to the house. Go home. Get in that room. Close that door and meet with God in private. For some of us, we need all of the accessories. We need the crowds. 
Because we're more enamored with the crowds than we are with the one that the crowds are supposed to be beholding. <laughs> and we're more entertained by a public prayer meeting than we are the consideration of having access to God in the secret place. And I couldn't even imagine sitting in a room trying to connect with God for 30 minutes. Like, bro, like, what are you going to pray about after the first 10 minutes? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, bro, after 10 minutes, I'm going to pray about everything I've ever thought about praying about. And after 30 minutes, we're sitting there and we're like, ah, da, da, like, Lord, I'm trying. And you get your phone out and you're like, okay, no, 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 I can't do that. And our attention span wanders because it has not yet been fascinated to the degree where it can be sustained by the only object of affection that is able to sustain our attention 24-7 in the place of eternity. God is the only object in the universe that is worthy of 24-7 in the place of eternity, affection, attention, and adoration. Because in, in actuality, God is the only person that can be worshipped constantly and still be himself. <laughs> and thank you, God, for it. Because you and I were not created with the capacity to be worshipped. Uh, because it changes us. Some of us can't get an extra couple followers on social media. Right? Without, oh, I'm walking different now, baby. Like, woo-woo! Just put that video out. Boy, you see how many views I got? You see how many views I got on that video? You can't talk to me like that. Do you know who I am, bro? Like, God is doing something in my life. Can't treat me that way anymore. But there's levels to this. And I am coming up. Oh, Jesus, help us. You and I were not created with the capacity to be worshipped because it changes us. And God is the only person, the only thing, the only object in all of the universe that is able to be worshipped constantly and yet still beautifully and consistently be himself. and still beautifully and consistently be himself. And so he unveils himself to provoke the response of worship, not so that it can change him, because God is unchanged by our worship. God is unchanged by our fasted efforts. God is unchanged by all of our devotional efforts. God is unchanged. And you have to actually believe this even if we've never necessarily considered it this directly. He can't be the same yesterday, today, and forever if we actually believe that he is changed by our devotional efforts. So if we're not the ones that are changing him when we are gathering around him and worshiping him, then who are the ones that are being changed by the effort of worship? <laughs> that would be you and that would be me. 
And God is serving his interests in our lives by unveiling himself to us. Because he realizes the best thing that could happen to you and happen to me is that we would get to see him. Because in seeing him, it creates a reference point that is something wildly other than anything we've ever been able to perceive. It's why they say you are holy. We've never seen anything like you. You are other. You are wonderful. You are beautiful. You are majestic. You are glorious. You are exalted. You are other. You are holy. And God reveals himself in order to create a reference point of something unlike any other thing that our hearts are so prone to desire to worship. And one of the ways that he conquers lesser lovers and idols in our hearts is by revealing the beauty of his son. And he says, I know that you're in love with this, but have you seen this? Oh, because I'm telling you, you may think that's good, but if you ever get to see him and he unveils the beauty of Jesus and in us being able to see this worthy one, this lamb slain, this resurrected bridegroom king, we are provoked to wonder. And in our provoking to wonder, I believe this is exactly what David experienced. His heart was so deeply touched by something that God had revealed to him that he said, I will give the rest of my life to contend to see God have a habitation upon the earth. And David is not just saying, I want to have cute meetings. David established a tent. He established a tabernacle where the presence of God would be central to life and existence. And worshiping and adoring God himself, right? Not God for other things, but adoring God himself was going to be central to what their lives were going to be defined by. And out of that, David was longing, though he was king in a city and in a region, he longed to see the reign of God over his city and region. And this is why he gave himself to night and day worship and intercession because you cannot separate the idea of worship from government. In Revelation, they're gathered around the throne. In Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. In Ezekiel 1, when the heavens are pulled back and he's able to peer or gaze into this glorious moment where God reveals by the Spirit, there's a throne in the heavens. And everywhere you find the throne, you find worship. Everywhere you see the throne, you see worship. For he is enthroned upon the praises of his people, Psalm 22.3. And so you cannot separate the idea of worship from government. And David was saying, if we really want to see the rule of God sweep over our city and region, we have to begin to give ourselves to worship and intercession. 
We have to begin to contend for worship and intercession. I'm grateful for historic moves of God. I'm grateful for times where God has seemed to visit the timeline of history in a unique way. There are all types of revivals and outpourings and shakings and moves that we can look back to in order to stir us and provoke us and to remind us that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond and over the things that at times we become satisfied to look for and ask for. And so I'm thankful that there are seasons uniquely in history where, yes, I get it. Theologically, God is everywhere at all time. I get that. But then there are unique seasons where God has chosen to uniquely visit, abide, create a habitation, create a place of possession. I'm reminded of Brownsville. And days where most of the time people didn't even make it inside the building because they'd be driving by. They'd pull into the parking lot, go to get out of their car and get possessed by the power of God and lay in the grass for hours and hours and hours, weeping and wailing and shaking, vibrating in the grass under the power of God. Hey, bro, like how was the meeting last night? I've got no clue. Bro, I never even made it inside. Like, are you for real? Like, bro, I pulled into the parking lot. <laughs> like, I got out of my car, and there I was for nine hours where they would gather the night before. <laughs> Man, <laughs> oh my Lord, Jesus, help us, please. Where they would gather the night before in America. I've been all over the world. Like, yeah, I get it. There's hunger and desperation, third world countries and impoverished places and, you know, the places where we exempt ourselves because, well, they don't have much. And so I get it. They're hungry. No, no. In America, God moved this way. The night before they're standing in line. I just got to get in the building because, man, God is here and God has chosen to possess a place. Right on the day of Pentecost, the wind blew first in the building, and then God filled the people. So I get it. There are times where he's going to fill a place and fill people. And in Brownsville, he seemed to occupy a property for himself. Man, Toronto, Argentina, the first and second great awakening. Man, where literally the preachers would preach and people would begin to tremble and people would begin to fall out of their seats wailing and weeping under the conviction of the simple preaching of the Word of God where the Word was established in a supreme way and we weren't waiting for something else. I didn't need the sprinkling of a man's gift because I was fascinated with the person of God. I'm talking about moves of God where man's gifting gets put in the back seat, where all of the charisma and all of the personalities, I promise you, there's no one that is likable enough to sustain 24-7 adoration. 
There's no gift great enough to impress me consistently in the place of eternity. And I'm talking about a move where Jesus is once again the one that takes center stage. Where Jesus is once again the one that the Father puts a highlight on and says, I get it. You're looking at all of these other things, but look at him again. Where conviction would sweep over cities. Over cities. And literally as in the days of some of the greats, Man, we have the books, the history books, the testimonies. Smith Wigglesworth boarding trains and everyone on the train falling on their face under the weight and the conviction of the power of the holiness of God. I'm not talking about arguing scripture verses on Facebook. I'm talking about where the conviction of God sweeps over a city. And he reminds the hearts of people that, yes, there's coming a day. Philippians 2, 9, 10, and 11. There's coming a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And everything above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth I get that, that it's coming on that great day, but there have been some pretty great days where God has chosen to peel back the curtain, where he's chosen to unveil the beauty of his son, where he's chosen to remind powers, principalities, rulers, wickedness, corruption, the hostility and the rebellious nature of man. He's chosen to remind sickness and disease. He's chosen to remind addiction and corruption. He's chosen to remind lawlessness and rebellious people. He's chosen to remind them that I am God. And he uniquely visits and conviction hits a city. Man, where people on school campuses can't conduct classes the way that they're supposed to. Because there's a divine disruption. God is in the midst of us. God is unveiling himself with glory and raw, authentic power. And this is not just the leveraging of human gifting. But God himself has chosen to visit uniquely. And there are times and seasons where it seems as if the Lord has chosen based off of a response to hunger that it existed in a preliminary way, sometimes for decades before it seems that God would visit as a response. It's not just random. It requires a hungry heart. And this is what Solomon is reflecting about his dad. He's saying, my dad had a hunger in his heart for the things of God. And it was more than language. He set his whole life up. Man, he set his whole life up to begin to pursue God. He set his whole life up to go after what it is that he knows that God revealed to him. And he paid any price. He counted every cost. He forsook every other lover. There was nothing that was able to gain entrance or access to derail what it was that had become the main thing to him. Man, and may the Lord do something to give us grace tonight where we establish the throne of God in our hearts and we make room for the tent 
We make room for the tabernacle. We make room for the ark in the center of our hearts, in the center of our homes, in the center of everything that we've become responsible for, where everything about us begins to find its pivot and its priority from presence. And Solomon said, this is what my dad was about. And it ruined his life. Man, I'm praying that the Lord ruins some of our lives tonight in the best possible way. I'm not out to get you. I believe God is out to get you, and I hope he gets you. As a matter of fact, I hope he gets all of you. And I want to get God too. I always say, if God's going to touch anybody, touch me. I'm not trying to get out of the way. I'm trying to get in the way. And David longed to see the banner of God stretched over his city and his region. Man, may your heart be provoked to begin to contend for God to uniquely visit this city and this region in our day. Man, may the intercessors begin to arise again. I want to speak to those of you who have grown weary in the place of interceding. Those of you that have grown frustrated by the callousness of our culture and the rampance, if you would, of wickedness in our day. Our focus is never the agenda of darkness, but our focus is always the glory and the power and the majesty of King Jesus. And the only time that we burn out is when we're looking at the wrong thing. Because <laughs> I'm just unwilling to believe that you see him and see him rightly and see him consistently and yet get tired of what you're looking at. The only way that you burn out is when you shift the focus. It's when you set your eyes on other things. It's when a priority or an object of affection becomes something else. And he becomes secondary. He becomes a supplement. Man, let's fix our gaze once again. Because we long to see the Lord establish a place, a house, a people for him to possess. And this is what David wanted. He wanted to see the Lord possess a place and a people. And this should be the cry of our hearts. Yes, uniquely until we wait for that great and glorious day. Because we're waiting for the day when God comes and he abides in the midst of us. And it's forever. And he evicts every other rule. And he undoes every other kingdom. And the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. And we long for that day. And our hearts ache for the reality of what we know by the Spirit. Because the Spirit as a down payment is groaning on the inside for what it is that God is longing to see manifest and established in the full measure way that He desires. And that Romans 8.19, creation is groaning because even it realizes that it's been subjected to futility in a sin-saturated experience that is not what God desires. And it's groaning and it's longing for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. The bride that will steward creation alongside of the bridegroom through worship and intercession to restore, if you would, the joy of Eden once again, 
to saturate all of creation. That ultimate reconciliation where everything will be reconciled into and unto the kingship of Jesus. And he will be in a geopolitical way. What I mean by that is actual geography. We all recognize it's going down on a mountaintop in the Middle East. He's coming upon the cloud to step down on a mountaintop in the Middle East and upon Mount Zion. So geography and then politics. Kingdom politics is Jesus is king. That's kingdom politics. Because Jesus is not right and Jesus is not left. Jesus is above. <laughs> yes. And geopolitically, when he rules and he reigns, yes, now, and by the Spirit, the kingdom is advancing. And the Lord is longing to establish houses and people, a family, a tribe, a company that will give themselves. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56, 7, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. And my house of prayer shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And we want to see the Lord build his house, which I believe can be physically, but it's also people. It's a family. You cannot disconnect the idea of house from family. Because we are a family of new creatures. We are now the expression of one new man. And I believe that Acts 13 is a New Testament pattern for life together in God to fulfill his purposes until the coming again of his son. Acts 13 gives us a pattern or a prototype. It is not just a suggestion in a particular point in history where it, well, it seemed good for those guys. Acts 13 verses 1 through 4 is the prototype of New Testament family giving themselves divinely possessed by God unto his purposes. And it says at Antioch there was a church. And there at that church, there were prophets and teachers. We're the expression of one new man. Ephesians 2 tells us that the wall of enmity has been conquered. All of the divide which means we have zero reason to be divided except those reasons that we willingly embrace. Because the wisdom of the cross and the power of the blood has created a brand new people group. And we are now defined first, foremost, and only as a Jesus people. We are not American Christians. We are Christians. We are not white Christians, black Christians, yellow Christians. We are Christians. Black church, white church doesn't make any sense in the consideration of the church that the gospel has actually purchased. And by gospel, I mean God in Christ 
on the cross, laying down his life, filleted wide open, spilling his blood, being raised from the dead, ascending on high. The church that this has purchased is not one that is defined by lower level categories and worldly distinctions. All of the reasons that we separate and segregate and willingly choose to embrace divisions among us are things that at least theologically, supposedly, we claim that the blood of Jesus has purchased. And it's conquered every bit of hostility. It's conquered every divide. It's conquered every weapon and attempt for the world to try to separate us and subdivide us. But we are a Jesus people, and we are a brand new family. We are a family of new creatures. We are a new creation. We are a brand new people. We are a people that are defined by Jesus as king. We are a people that are recreated by the blood of the lamb. We are a family that is a sign and a wonder to the nations as they gather round about us because our unity is something that is more than what money can buy what politics can argue for and what all of our own self-absorbed interests are able to sustain. We are a family where he himself has become our peace. And there at Antioch, there are prophets and teachers and it begins to lay out the names of five guys who took the day to minister to the Lord, to worship and to fast and to pray. And you have Barnabas, who is from Cyprus. He's a Greek. You find out at the end of Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas is actually a Levite. <laughs> and it says Barnabas the Levite sold his house and brought all the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles. All right, the charge to the Levites in Numbers 18 and the Old Testament charges was you shall have no material possession like the rest of your brothers and tribes because I myself will be everything to you and I will be your inheritance and I will be your grand possession because I will give myself to you. And you find that Barnabas is a Levite and you find that Simeon, who is called Niger, is an African, and you find Lucius and Manaean and Saul, and what you find there is you find that Romans and Greeks and Jews and Africans, you find that Levites and Pharisees are all worshiping together and ministering to the Lord. And their commonality is not their social interests. Their commonality is not how many kids they have. Their commonality is not the color of their skin. It's not the side of town where they were raised. It's not their social stock. It's not their bank account status. It's not whether or not they were a business owner. But their commonality was a God that had laid his life down for them. And as they sing songs to the Lamb in Revelation 5, for you have purchased a people for God with your own blood, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. 
you find a kingdom of priests established in Acts 13. You find this Peter royal priesthood in Acts 13, where they gave themselves, not just for the day, because the language there, when you study the words, is the act of an ongoing way of life. It wasn't like, in case of emergency, break glass. Now we have to spend a day fasting. It says that they're there together, prophets and teachers, which means that there's a convergence, if you would, of all of the streams. <laughs> Where all of the streams and all of the other ways that we uniquely divide ourselves and celebrate divisions among us, that all of these things conquered all of these things beautifully being lived out and demonstrated, and the thing that is consistently creating the bond between them is a way of life ministering to the Lord. And they're ministering to the Lord as a way of life. Worshiping, fasting, praying. And they're there creating a space for God to be able to do whatever God wants to do in the midst of them. And this is the reality of Isaiah 56, 7. House prayer nations. Because as a family house, we have to learn how to minister to the Lord. Real prayer. Real prayer is not just shouting off our hit list. Real prayer is learning how to minister to the Lord. Real prayer is joining in with what's on his heart, bearing his burden in the place of intercession. Could you not tarry with me just a little longer? I'm longing to give someone access to the things that are on my heart. I'm longing to find a faithful friend that I can reveal my desires to. I'm longing to open wide and let you come inside to where you would join me in praying when you pray pray this way. Right? When you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Right? That's going to be super hard to pray if we're trying to build our own. Right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's looking for a people that would give themselves in an ongoing way to worship and intercession, to steward the priority of his presence and then to unleash his desires and his decrees upon the earth. And this is what life is about. It's joining him in his mission to build his house, to minister to him day and night and then out of adoration, declaration, neighbors and nations. Because it's only when we minister to God that we can receive real instructions on how to minister to others. And I'm saying ministering to others is the consequence of giving your life to ministering to God. And that's why at Acts 13, they're there ministering to the Lord day and night, night and day. And they are providing a place where their lives have come under, they have become subject to the government of God. Right? We're not just praying, Lord, take dominion over my city. 
right? Because to consider or to think that God would extend his dominion over our city without first gaining dominion in my own heart and life. No, no, Lord, make those guys subject to you. Praise God. Get out there and get those sinners, Lord, like all of those rebellious ones. Go get them, Jesus. It's like, no, they brought their lives subject to the government of God. You can rule here. You can have what you want in the midst of us. You want a people that will become subject to your rule and your reign and your government. Lord, we'll give you what you paid for. Here we are, and we're together. Yellow, purple, white, brown, black, blue, all the colors, because you purchased a people for God from every tribe, from every nation, and every tongue. And we're coming under your government together that you would rule in the midst of us. And you're going to build your house, and you're going to build your family. And there they are in Acts 13 as a company, as a family, because house turns to prayer. And ministering to the Lord, the consequence or the byproduct of that is ministering to others. And as they're there worshiping and praying, it says that the Holy Spirit speaks. And out of the midst of them, they begin to reveal assignments. There's divine instructions and objectives that God begins to unveil in the midst of them as they gave themselves to the main thing. The main thing turned into what we would call ministry endeavors, what we would consider to be missional objectives. When the main mission of my life is to give my life to ministering to God, it is inevitable at a certain point that God is going to direct me to the things that are on his heart, which is the revealing and the proclaiming of the gospel throughout all creation, that we would begin to announce the gospel in a missional way. And so we bear a twofold purpose. It is internal and external. There is a duality or a dual nature to our mission in life. And the main thing is to minister to the Lord. And that's because we want Marys that learn how to work and not Marthas that we're always trying to train how to worship. We want Marys that learn how to work. We want lovers to get turned into laborers and not laborers that are out there defined by what they do, but have fallen out of love. And they only feel important when they have a cool testimony to post or some picture that they put up on Instagram. Look at this person that I prayed for today. When it's more for you than it is for anybody that you claim to be trying to provoke. Because that's where we receive our def definition or our value. Right? So we want lovers that God turns into laborers. We want Marys that learn how to work and not Marthas that we're always frustrated trying to train them how to worship. And they give themselves to the presence of God together, meant to worship, to intercede, and the Holy Spirit speaks and begins to reveal assignments, callings,
missional objectives. Send those guys there. Send these guys here. These guys, this is what they are. Release them that way. And it says that even after the Holy Spirit spoke, that they continued fasting and praying and worshiping. Man, like, are you for real? Like after they got what they were in there for, like they didn't just wrap it all up and be like, okay, like we got what we came for. This is really what we were after. Like now I know who I am. Now I know my call. Now I finally got like my assignment. No, no, no. Our assignment is to give our life to loving Jesus. And our assignment is to be wholly satisfied with ministering to the Lord for the rest of our lives. Because if we grow bored with him now, what will we do when we see him as he is on that great day? <laughs> it's like, oh my, I was bored with you on this side of life. What am I going to do when you fill all things in the age to come? Oh, Jesus, help my heart, please. Condition me beyond the threshold of right now what seems to be my limitations and my capacities in different areas. Where I'm not bored with who you are and I'm not growing cold in the midst of religious duty and obligation. Where I'm not feeling obligated to try to do certain things. I'm not feeling obligated to try to love you. I'm not feeling obligated in the place of worship or in the place of prayer. I'm not feeling obligated to try to linger and to look at you. And I have to do these things because I say I'm a Christian or I have to do these things because I don't want to go to hell or I have to do these things to check my religious box for the week, but I'm exhausted in the place of doing things I know I'm supposed to do, but it's because my heart has grown weary in the place of loving the one that I know I'm supposed to love. And at times we just need to say, Lord, I need you to touch me and give me hunger that I realize I don't have. I need you to do something to stir my affections again. Because if I'm going to be honest, I'm growing cold. If I'm going to be honest, I feel distant. If I'm going to be honest, I'm doing all of the stuff. But the stuff is not provoking me to wonder. The stuff is not seeming to penetrate my affections. But Lord, if you would touch me. Lord, if you would help me to see you again. Right? I don't need answers. I need a visitation. Right? Some of the demands that we placed on God in order to feel excited again or satisfied again or to feel valued again. No, no, no. You don't need any of those other things. You don't need an explanation. You need a revelation. Right? Job had a lot of demands. At the end of his life, he gets no explanation, but he gets an awesome revelation. Right? Job even says, man, if God were here, I'd put him on the stand and I'd question him to his face. I would demand that he tell me what I did to deserve all of this miserable stuff. It's like, oh, would you really, bro? Right now, now I get it. Like, there are times where we get super deep in our feelings. I get that. Right? Like, I get that. But Job is like, bro, if God were here, let me tell you, man, like straight up, I'd confront him. And I would put him on the stand and I would question him to his face like a man and demand that he tell me what I did to deserve this. And then God shows up. Oh, then God shows up. 
He's like, hey, bro. Stand up on your feet. And I'm going to question you to your face. Where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I told the waters and the waves how far they could come on the shoreline? Where were you when I told the cheetah how fast it could run? He's like, bro, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. Right? Where were you? Right? We don't need an explanation. We need another revelation. And we need God to touch our hearts and to provoke us to a place where we are willing to give the rest of our lives to pursuing him and ministering to him and giving him what he's worth. And then out of that, joining him in the place of intercession as a family so that he can reveal his instructions on how we are to missionally saturate every space of the globe with the announcement of the gospel. This is what we are to give our lives to. And it's why house turns into prayer and prayer turns into neighbors and nations. Right? And, and I'm not just trying to add things to the scriptures, but I like to suggestively say mission is to neighbors also. Right? I get it. You, you can sit at home and pray for God to shake a country, but let's learn our neighbor's name. Like, I get it. We can treasure hunt at the mall and do all that kinds of cool stuff, too. But let's walk across the street and let's knock on the door where God has planted my family and I'm actually paying to be. <laughs> right? For those of us who have a, a rent or a mortgage, right? Like, you're paying to be there. That is your divine assignment. You're there. We want to see the Lord conquer neighborhoods. Right? Yes, we want to see the Lord reveal his beauty to nations, but we also want to see the Lord reveal his beauty to neighborhoods. And this is what they gave themselves to in Acts 13. And it becomes a prototype for us to build houses and families that God will possess with his own person and then with his purposes where we give ourselves to presence consistently together and out of the place of intercession, we long for the Lord to re reveal instructions. This is a way of life and a New Testament pattern and prototype. And I believe that the Lord is calling in a deeper way to a company of people here to begin to contend for a historic unveiling of the person of Jesus in this region where we would give ourselves to the Genesis 26, digging up the wells of our fathers once again, where we wouldn't be so preoccupied with the things of our day, even as it says in Genesis 26 that the Philistines had covered in the wells with the things of the earth, where we would get our affections and our interests off the things of the earth and where we would set them once again upon the ultimate things and upon the heaven itself and upon the lamb that was slain and where we would begin to dig once again in our respected harvest field to see God unveil himself in a historic way. Amen. And I believe the Lord wants to pour out his spirit in an extraordinary way in this region. Man, I'm telling you, we need our hearts to be recalibrated 
to what it is that God's power is actually able to do. Where we gain a divine dissatisfaction. Not, not, not like critical and rebellious, but we gain a divine dissatisfaction with all the lesser things. It's just not enough. I'm tired of unique personalities, and I'm tired of the wielding of human gifting, and I'm tired of the leveraging of all of what is our capabilities, and we're doing it all, so we have to sustain it all, and we're trying to rally everybody around a face and a voice and a premier personality. I'm tired of all of that. I'm tired of celebrities and politics and all of that. I long to see God shake everything that can be shaken with wonder and awe and glory. And I believe the Lord wanted me to provoke your heart to begin to knock on the door for a historic outpouring in this region, for an unprecedented shaking in this region. And he's calling on the hearts of hungry lovers and faithful friends to put the presence in the center of everything that you are responsible for and to make every other thing begin to orbit around presence and to give yourself again to deep, and when I say deep, I don't necessarily mean things that are strange. What I'm saying is a consistent or a faithful attention to the place of intercession for the things that are on God's heart. Where we would give ourselves to him and to his heart and where we would begin to dig and build and we would knock on the door saying, Lord, we're not satisfied with every other thing that people are satisfied with. Our hearts are hungry because we know that you're greater than the things that we may have seen up until now. And if you think you've seen extraordinary things, I promise you, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. And we want God in the midst of his people. Yes, it's time to answer the call. <laughs> I love it. Let's stand together all over the room. That was actually amazing. <laughs> it's time to answer the call. the Lord is sweeping over the room looking for a hungry heart and I've just learned that there are moments there are moments over the timeline of our lives where God presents an invitation of sorts and if we can be discerning enough 
to step into a moment that God presents. We literally can get caught up in the wind of God, almost like a vacuum. And the whole trajectory of life in God as we've known it can pivot. It can turn where an invitation can become a unique hinge point where we look back as a reference point like Solomon did over the life of his dad. And we say, man, I remember the night that it actually happened. And I'm not saying that it has to be some external, extra type, you know, frenzy or demonstration. I'm not even necessarily saying that you got to feel goosebumps and tingles because that don't last long enough anyways. Right? Much of my life in God hasn't been about goosebumps and tingles. Now, don't get it wrong, though. There's been moments where the Lord has visited me and has absolutely floored me and reminded my heart that he is greater. I've had times where the Lord has come and touched me in such a profound way. I've been carried out of meetings. I'm not talking because everybody else went down. I remember I showed up to a meeting late. I got off work late. I was mad. I was speeding. I got a speeding ticket on the way. I tried to tell the cop that I was a preacher, that I was on pastoral staff at one of the churches in the city, that I was rushing to a meeting and I was late and I was mad because I couldn't get there on time because my boss held me and I couldn't get out of work as early as I wanted to, thinking that if I told him I was a preacher, it was going to help me get out of the ticket. He wrote the ticket for more because I was trying to connive him, so to speak. But I remember showing up to this meeting late and walking up to the tent. We were having a tent meeting in the middle of downtown. And my father-in-law had preached that night. Hundreds of people had showed up and everyone was leaving. And the worship team was breaking down. There was a couple of them that were still on the platform and they were you know, just kind of doing their thing. And I remember I thought to myself, if I could just get there, like if I could just get in there to the altar, like just, just get in there, maybe, maybe I can still get what I came for. And I remember this lady was walking out of the meeting and she stopped me about a hundred yards away from the tent. And this lady was amazing, but she also liked to talk in an amazing way. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I've got to do whatever I can to keep this brief because I'm here for something. And if I don't get by her, I'll never get there. <laughs> right? And she's awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's amazing. But there I was, engaged in conversation, trying to give one-word answers, thinking that I could shut it down in a quicker manner. And it wasn't working. And at a certain point, I caved to the sense of frustration and disappointment, thinking I've missed it. Because I, I was able to get close enough, but I got resisted here. And I'm not able to get there where it is I think I need to go. So whatever, I'm just in the conversation now. Might as well just get myself to it in the fuller way. And so we started talking about all kinds of stuff. 
And after about 20 minutes, she went to walk by me. And she stopped and she said, young man, she was several decades older than me. She said, young man, would you give me a hug? I was like, I will. And I leaned in to hug her. And as I hugged her, she held on to the hug a little longer than I was expecting. And I started to get a little uncomfortable because now I wasn't trapped in a conversation. I was trapped in a hug. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if to like try to jar myself free. And I was like, well, I'm just in the hug now. And so I was like, all right. And as I thought she began to let me go, she started to pray. And I only remember the first six or seven words that she said. Because what I remembered after that was getting picked up out of the dirt, face down, drool all over the side of my face. I couldn't stand on my own. I couldn't talk for a day and a half. All I could do every time I tried to interact with someone was weep and vibrate and speak in tongues. They carried me to the car. They drove me to my house. They carried me out of my vehicle and laid me on my couch in my living room. My wife sat next to the couch all night long, weeping, not knowing if I was going to make it not understanding what was actually going on, not out of a lack of faith, because I'm telling you, it's all super cute and really cool and fun and games until God actually comes in raw power, in more than what we just know how to manage by our own efforts and with our own wisdom. When God actually reminds all of creation, I am God and you are not, and I am greater than all of the stuff that you think you're doing. I am more amazing than all of the effort you think you're able to contribute. And as I laid on that couch vibrating, my wife sat next to the couch weeping. She drove me to work the next day. And into a sales office environment I went, having to deal with the general public. And after about 30 minutes, I realized I can't be out here. All of my coworkers were terrified. I could speak to no one. Every time I tried to talk, and I would just weep and shake, but I didn't want to get fired, so I had to show up to work. And after about an hour or so, they put me in the back room, and they sat me at a table, and I sat there under the weight of God's glory, thinking to myself, Lord, this is awesome, but if you don't lift this, it's going to ruin my life. I'm going to get fired. I need this job. Like, I got to pay my bills, Lord. I just got married. Like, I'm not trying to lose this job. I'm embarrassed. Like, I don't know what to do. And after about two hours of sitting in the back room, somewhat begging the Lord to lift this, 
I began to resume a sense of normalcy. And I share all of that to say because I believe that there are moments in our history in God where the Lord has visited us. And no, the story may not be the same, but I'm not telling the story so that you can be like, oh, look how super cool this guy is. I'm telling the story because I know that he's no respecter of person. I'm telling the story because I know that those that hunger and thirst, the promise is they shall be filled. I'm telling the story because I realize that he's always faithful to feed the hungry. I'm telling the story because I know that in this room that there are testimonies and we're not supposed to weigh them and be like, oh bro, yours is cooler than mine, but hey, I think mine's cooler than yours. And where God has visited us in a way to provoke our hearts to wonder and awe with his power and to put our lives into and onto a trajectory where we will give everything we have over all of the time that we have to steward to him and to his purposes because of the way that we've been touched. And I believe that there's some of you in the room that have been touched. Maybe, maybe all of you. I mean, I, I'm just saying I know there has to be at least some of you. And I'm asking you, I believe, by the Spirit to rise in this hour. To rise in this hour and to give yourself together to ministering to the Lord. To give yourself together to the presence of God in every possible way that you can reorient life to make presence what matters most. Because I believe the Lord is giving grace. Right? We reference Psalm 2. In the day when the nations are raging, I long to give you the nations as your inheritance, but I want you to ask me for them. Ask me for the nations and I will give them as your inheritance. So I believe the Lord is giving grace to ask. And that may sound super simple, but I promise you the consequences of a season of asking are not able to be quantified, if you would. The Lord is giving grace to ask, to knock on the door, Lord, we want to see you pour out your spirit in a historic way in our city, in our region. We want to see you pour out your spirit in a historic way. Yeah, I'm grateful for history books, but I want to see you write history in my moment of history. Unveil your son with power. And so let's take a couple of moments all across the room. And let's just begin to look to the Lord. As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask if some of our worship team would come back. <laughs> come on, yes. We're going to give him what he wants. Even the songs we sang together in the beginning of the meeting. Be exalted. Be exalted. And in a place of worship,
We're just going to take several moments together. And I'm going to ask the Lord to stir our hearts to where we individually would sense the tug on our own lives and the invitation that God is presenting. Because it does not make sense as a corporate thing unless it falls individually in accountability in a personal way. Right? The building is not powerful. It's the people that fill the building. <laughs> the property address is not where the power is. But it's the hungry hearts that fill the building and occupy the address. And so let's enter back into worship tonight together. Man, I'm telling you, I'm asking the Lord to mark our lives tonight. Where the invitation is going forth. Will you give your life to this? To learning how to minister to me. Will you give your life to the prioritization of my presence? Will you give your life to joining me in beautiful subjection to my rule over your life? Where you offer your heart and you become a broker of breakthrough in a city and a region because you have fallen beautifully subject to Jesus as King. Where we say, Lord, get into me so that you can get into my city. Begin to rule my heart so that your reign can extend over my city. We want to see a historic outpouring. Lord, do what only you can do. Meetings are amazing, and we're going to be a part of meetings. But we want to see the glory of God. We want to see the glory of God. All blessing and honor and power and dominion. 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 <laughs> 